Welcome to the 13 Days of X-Men, Monkey Off My Backlog's second annual limited series. I'm your host, Sam, and with me is the... You know what? This bit isn't going to work this week because every relationship in this movie is terrible. So here's Tessa. Hello! Also, we have a new-to-monkey guest joining us today, Lazi. Hello! Hi guys, how are you? We are... Enjoying the holiday season, because it's definitely the holiday season right now. So, (laughs) last year, because movie marathon... Ah, let me try that again. Last year, because movie marathons are a holiday tradition for us, we watched nine Fast and Furious movies and released nine podcast episodes over nine days. This time, we're raising the stakes by watching the 13 movies in the Fox X-Men series. Today, we're talking about one of Brett Ratner's top three projects, X-Men, The Last Stand. I mean, we start with a good burn. I like it. I mean, I had to look. I was like, wait, are there actually three things that he did that are, like, approaching good? For for a franchise which in comics is uh, so strong and so diverse, is there a, a movie franchise which is a more... I don't know, a bigger indictment of white men failing upwards than uh, than the Fox X-Men series. <laughs> I mean, if you think about the fact that Brett Ratner's first success is like appropriation of two different cultures by way of Rush Hour. It is, yeah. Which is his best work. I mean, and then and then uh, I would put I don't Prison, know Prison Break yeah, number two. I, that's- that's the got TV a um, that's got a hot guy in it. Um, <laughs> so that's all I all I know about. <laughs> that that's right. <laughs> that's right. Who who both became prominent? Yes, they were DC in Legends, weren't they? Characters. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Good. <laughs> yeah, Wetworth Miller is coming back to uh, Legends of Tomorrow. Cold? Yeah, or Captain Colt, or some other alliterative thing that ends with Colt. Some sort of Leonard Snart. <sighs> Some version of Leonard Snart. Look, guys, you're gonna you're gonna have to start getting used to multiverses pretty pretty aggressively. So it's just so hard to do comics adaptations right, and I think this all just proves that. Anyway, before uh, is it? Though? I mean, <laughs> I mean, I feel like there's a company who's doing a good job. It's difficult for the yeah. people who have the ability to yeah. do them, which really tells you more about them. But before we get into all that, what are you looking forward to this holiday season, Lazi? Uh, so I am looking forward to uh, my children getting to play on a Nintendo Switch, which they don't know about yet. And I'm looking forward to my annual um, Lord of the Rings Extended Edition rewatch. We're actually doing a Lord of the Rings Extended Edition rewatch this holiday season as well, mainly because... Sam has never successfully stayed awake during an entire... Oh, I was awake. <laughs> I was I was so awake that day because something was horribly wrong. I had to literally go get narcotics the next week because my body had broken. Right. So I was awake for it, just in a lot of pain and not because of the movies. And not because of the movies. So yeah, we're actually going to do that, I think, <laughs> Christmas Eve this year. We're going to watch, because we're just on our own this holiday season. Right. So I think we're going to watch all of them. I'm so excited. Yeah, I, I have to say, I, I watch it every year. Sort of uh, some of uh, friends on Slack have a tendency to start just uh, watching them 
over over three over a week sort of every other day or so do you do anything special when you're rewatching these any sort of hobbit related festivities i mean successfully drink and eat that's very hobbity so yeah that is very hobbity we always ask this every year when we have a new guest but are you a fan of holiday themed films and if so what are the ones that you sort of return to every year I mean, with the most diminishing returns, uh, Love Actually uh, is, you know, like every time I watch it, I go, <laughs> I lose, I basically lose a plot every time I watch that film now. Like when I started off, I was like, huh. oh, I quite like a lot of these plots. I don't like that one, but fine. And then every rewatch, I'm just like, no, hate them. No, hate them. <laughs> so do you still have a top three plot line yet? Still? Mm. <laughs> struggling oh yeah the um uh bilbo baggins and um uh singy from uh gavin and stacy who are like uh set piece porn actors that one ages remarkably well <laughs> uh so yeah so martin martin freeman is actually pretty great in like everything he's in actually but um uh yeah like the colin colin first one i would have said i quite liked and now i'm like uh Obviously, anyone making Emma Thompson upset is just a tragedy. Um, I guess I kind of like Hugh Grant and Martin McCutcheon. Yeah, they're still all right, even though he's a Tory prime minister, which I don't know. Yeah, really but that, that Pointer Sisters dancing scene, I mean, I think that covers up a lot of sins. See, you, the, the thing is, mate, you've got to understand that that's not the Pointer Sisters. That's Girls Aloud now. Like, yes, obviously the song is originally Girls Aloud. Right. Sorry, Pointer Sisters, but yeah, it's the Girls Aloud UK girl band cover version. Uh, I don't want it. I'm not slagging off Girls Aloud, who are amazing. But, <laughs> but yeah, it's like there was a, they specifically launched that version, that cover for those things. What do you think about, um, we've talked about this one in, in recent years, uh, the one with Colin going to America uh-huh. and how it's such a weird stereotype. Like, I think it's hilarious. I used to hate it, but it's like, <laughs> it just makes me laugh all the time. The now. thing is, I know that guy from like really weird sitcoms in the UK and like the, he used to be in these BT adverts and stuff. So I just have no, he's just an awful. <laughs> he is a horrible, that's, that's horrible, a good perspective. Horrible, not the actor. I'm sure the actor's fine, but the character is just horrible and he gets rewarded and I don't care for it. See, it, it's really interesting watching that show every year because that's our tradition, too, from, you know, an American standpoint. Like, I lived and taught uh, at a university for two years that's in Billy Bob Thornton's hometown in Arkansas. Oh, right. So, like, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Like, the one real, other than Colin's storyline, the one big, like, well, I guess Laura Linney's character, too. But Oh, yeah. Like, the president. Yeah, but... But, you know. I'm, but that makes me sad. Actually, you're right. The Laura Linney storyline, she's lovely and she's great. And then it just makes me sad that she can't have more time with Hot Carl. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay. So I know you said you're getting diminishing returns on Love Actually, but it's still better than The Last Stand, right? Uh, yeah, just about. <laughs> okay. There Do you a bit, like that okay. I like the so, segue. Yeah. It was a good segue. We should probably talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, Love Actually is such a good movie. Diminishing Returns, I think you might be right about that. I think I might like it more than you do, but you're definitely right. 
<laughs> so um you could start for any opinion that I have for the rest of it. I mean, you know. <laughs> We'll have to talk about last Christmas some other day. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so quick plot summary of The Last Stand from somebody who is not nearly as invested as both of you are. There's a cure for the mutant gene. Gene Gray isn't dead. That's it. That's what I had. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty basically much, it. Which one, which one do you want to talk about first? Okay. I suggest we talk about the cure plotline first because it's actually a movie rather than the Jean Grey Dark Phoenix which isn't actually a movie so I think so it's it's obviously straight from the the Joss Whedon uh, gifted storyline there's a lot of I got written down here that the first 25 minutes of this movie are fun and then Jean Grey shows up yeah I, I mean I think that that's pretty accurate so the the storyline that we're talking about is from The Gifted, which is a, a series by Joss Whedon. Apparently, the theme of today's podcast is going to be terrible men, uh, right? Really interesting things because, yeah, Brett Ratner and Joss Whedon are both prominently going to be talked about in this podcast. But yeah, it is, it is based on this idea of what happens when the government has a cure for mutants and how does that get used? I find, I, you know, and they kind of bring that in via the Beast character, which we haven't seen Beast yet in, in these movies. This is our first introduction to Beast, who is, of course, played by Frasier himself, Kelsey Grammer. In, in, another terrible man. <laughs> another, another terrible white man. Although, I have to admit, casting him as Beast might actually be very brilliant. It might be the most brilliant casting they've done so far in these movies. Yeah, we'll actually talk about later how they don't even get credit for that. That wasn't them. <laughs> At all. Uh, I Yeah, I really... So there's a classic, classic uh, Beast reveal where he's, he's filmed coming in, reading, and then they spin the camera and re uh, to reveal that he's hanging from the ceiling. Like, yeah. Very good. It's exactly what you do. You know Beast. We've seen him from the animated show. That's Beast. And, and I think, you know... Pretty, pretty decently close to his character, at least at, at that time. Um, I think, you know, Kelsey Graham's pretty not right, but, you know, I think he's, I think he's fine as Beast in this film. I, I'm really, I, I've been looking forward to this episode because you both just in a second, uh, a minute ago, were like, both knew off the top of your head this was a Joss Whedon astonishing adaptation. I did not know that until yesterday. Uh, you know, you can't be an expert in everything, nor should you be. But I read this Cure storyline as two things. A way to get Magneto against Professor X again, because they were kind of, you know, the enemy of my enemy back in X2, and now we need to have them pitted against each other. So this is a way of doing that. And, you know, this seems very elusive to uh, a gay conversion narrative. And that's that's what I got from it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's very fair. Um, I think, particularly when you consider the singer of it all in these series, um, and um, his sort of, I don't know, X Men has always been a uh, the mutant metaphor sort of works as well as it works, and then breaks down as soon as it breaks down, <laughs> but has been a good metaphor for other. Um, there is some 
obviously, you know, nail on the head stuff in X2 with uh, with Bobby and have you tried not being a mutant and that I think you're right rolls rolls into into this. So Brian Singer I think is is interested in exploring mutation as a, a direct uh, metaphor for you know for queerness. Right. And I think so is Ian McKellen. We've talked about on previous episodes that he was attracted to the role of Magneto specifically because of Singer's commitment to talking about LGBTQ plus themes in these films. And honestly, I think that McKellen's version of Magneto is super queer in a lot of ways. And I think that it were he reads as being almost more queer in this particular film than he has even in previous films as well because of his relationship with Charles but also because of just I don't know he just plays this as very like melodramatic and kind of campy and like there's a lot of cape swirling and there's a lot of like flirting with everybody a little bit like there's he's playing this role and just having so much fun while at the same time having this like gravitas of like He's playing a Holocaust survivor there. You know, he brings out his tattoo in the film in ways of talking about like government oversight. And if they have this ability to cure mutants, like it's they're going to start using it to control mutants. And we see that slow slide, right? Like at the beginning of the movie, it's, oh, well, the cure is voluntary. We just have it for people who want it. And then like 10 minutes later, it's used against Mystique, right? They have it in a gun and she, you know, yeah. takes the takes the cure instead of Magneto. And then 10 minutes after that, Beast is like, you said you were only going to use it for voluntary methods. Like, it's it's like very, very quickly clear that Magneto is right. Yeah. Yeah. It's way, it's way too quick, that transfer. You're, you're 100% right about the way McKellen plays him. Like, he starts off, you, you get this opening scene where he's, Wearing a purple turtleneck, purple suit, looking absolutely fantastic. <laughs> Charles is there looking sharp as well. Good boyfriends going to, you know, try and block someone's off a little bit, which isn't great. Um, and then you get, you know, you do get late. I mean, I don't know if we're, how far we're skipping around uh, plot beats here, but you get later a clear, um, aside from, uh, pyro. You know, being a bit, you know, denigrating to Charles, and and you can see how much Eric is affected by what just happened. It's always a bad sign when you discuss plot points in a movie that are affected so clearly by production issues. It's never good. It's never like, oh, they had to do this and it turned out better. That's literally never the way it is. This is a film yeah. that, and we talked about this with um, with Spectre when we were talking about Bond a few weeks ago. This is a movie that began shooting without a script. And so if it seems rushed, if it seems disconnected, it obviously is because all the things that led up to Ratner directing and then Ratner directing, it's like, oh, we can just make it work. Well, actually, you can't. I mean, the one it really reminds me of is Rise of Skywalker. So you've got a fixed fixed production oh, no. date, fixed release date. You've got you throw out the writer, you throw out the director, you rush everything in, and what you what do you get? You get some good bits, but mostly a mess that basically torpedoes the franchise for a while. Yeah, I I think that there's a lot and there's a lot of really unanswered questions in this and things that I feel like don't even I mean it's not even just plot holes it's things that don't make sense like 
if we're going to talk about like the cure storyline, one of the things that's revealed is that they are manufacturing this cure somehow from a mutant whose mutant ability is to cancel out other mutants' abilities. So when people yeah, get near leech. him, they can't use their abilities at all. I don't know how they're manufacturing a cure from this, but they are. And that's fine. That's not even like the plot hole that I'm talking about. The plot hole that I'm talking about is that clearly they're holding this child captive in this research facility in a room and Beast like meets him and like doesn't immediately argue that they've kidnapped this child. Like how are they holding, how are they using this child to like create a cure in this way? And yet like nobody is commenting on the fact that this person is clearly underage, clearly cannot consent to what they are doing. And like Beast is fine with it. Like Beast is just like, you have, you have a great ability and then walks off. (laughs) <laughs> it's yeah it, i mean they it, it's interesting because you can see elements of them for example trying to start undermining uh xavier which in the comics they've been doing for 30 40 years but is a bit i don't know probably a bit quick a bit dirty to do it in in this way in the films when he's basically just been put up on a on a um a pedestal for the first two films so they try and start undermining him and saying was he right to do this to gene was he you know is that the right thing and trying to make these characters morally ambiguous which they do with beast in the comics all the time and particularly in current comics he's he's more than morally ambiguous now but um yeah i guess most people at this time, I guess, know X-Men from the animated series where you've got a very, you know, white shining armor set of X-Men, little complexity. The complexity that exists kind of exists in Magneto and not 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 very many other places. Um, and you're right. Yeah. Like, why why on earth Beast would consent to this? Why on earth Beast would say, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Um, <laughs> the government definitely won't misuse that. <laughs> Like, Classically, they don't. Yeah. I, you know, my other than, so my first exposure to X-Men was a Marvel reprint of, so it's like a single issue reprint of the X-Men's origin story and the Fantastic Four origin story. That's it. So I came in all but cold <laughs> to this movie series. Wow. And, you know, for me, it's like, okay. Is Professor X wrong to do what he did to Jean Grey? Yes. What? I, I, I would have no idea that that's supposed to be ambiguous. But here's the thing. I, I understand, Tessa, what you're saying about the lack of development and the lack of like logic with, with coming in there. But, but have you stopped to consider when they put the, the research center on Alcatraz they were able to pay it off by having um, uh, uh, Warren at the end get his angel wings and like fly around Alcatraz so he could be the Birdman of Alcatraz. <laughs> what? Oh, what no. Why do you need character development and ambiguity and that. stakes when you have a pun, Tessa? <laughs> no I mean, illusion. okay. It's not even Look. a pun. Part of the problem with the Professor X of it all is that Professor X is being played by Patrick Stewart, who, as we all know, is like the most charming person alive. And so it's really hard to undermine. 
Like, because I don't think that he's necessarily comes across as a good person in the first two films either. If you actually stop to think about his attitude towards the mutants and his attitude towards his students, it's very paternalistic. It's very assimilationist. It's very like, well, if we're just good enough, then they'll accept us, which has always been his attitude in the comics as well. But the problem is, is that Patrick Stewart is so bleeping charming that you kind of like, oh, it's just Patrick Stewart. Like, you know, he's just, he's he's our dad, yeah. right? Like, he's like our dad, and that's what he's we want. Dad. He's our Star Trek dad, yeah. Yeah. He's not he's not Star Trek daddy, because um, cause that is Captain Sisko, oh. but he's the Star Trek dad. You, you know, I never watched Star Trek growing up, so this was, in fact, my introduction to Patrick Stewart. So none of that was true for me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, you're right about the assimilation. Thing. And, and, you know, again, current, current comics, they are doing a great job at revisiting and, re- and actually inspecting that, that dream, the Xavier dream. Uh, but they weren't interested in doing that here. They were just interested in, I think, the gay allegory and maybe a little bit more, but not a lot more. Um, and then they were rushed, right? As you say, they were completely rushed and they lost all track of what they were trying to do with the plot. And there's not a lot of plot. There's there's some good Easter eggs. I like a lot of the good Easter eggs that are good for, you know, comics uh, uh, geeks like myself. But um, but there's not a lot of plot. It goes, as you say, it escalates so quickly. It goes from oh, it's a cure to oh, there's a load of people queuing for the cure and protesting it to oh, look what a surprise it's weapons to. Now we've got a full scale war and uh, we're um, surfing on the Golden Gate Bridge. But of course. You know, they don't need much of a plot because, as you said, between the skeleton of a plot and all of the Easter eggs, between those two things, and if you add in the thing that was seeded at the end of X2, which is, of course, the Dark Phoenix storyline, if you plug that in, you got a whole movie, right? I'm just going to give Tessa the mic and you two can just have a good time. What did you think? I mean, I think we got a little taste of what you think earlier about the the Dark Phoenix storyline here. I guess I should ask you this first. So at the end of X2, Jean Grey dies, right? At in the at when the dam bursts and she's saving them. And then we get this little teaser that she's not actually dead when Professor X like senses her. Like it's, it's, it's implied that he like can sense that she's still alive telepathically and he kind of smiles and that's it. Well, there's a flash in the, there's a flash in the water, which looks like a Phoenix Raptor. And then she does the voiceover at the end of X2, I think as well. So I think there's a couple of hints. There's a couple of hints from that. And then he seems like, but he seems genuinely like happy that she's alive, which is very odd considering where this movie starts. Like he kind of, he kind of looks away and he's like, oh, like, I think everything will be okay. Like, and then this movie starts and everything is not okay. And he's not okay with what's happening either. So how did you feel about the ways that they transitioned from the X2 teaser into this dark phoenix storyline uh no good very bad <laughs> right. uh, so look my fundamental principle and they they do it again you're gonna see it again my fundamental principle is with phoenix is you have to do phoenix before you do dark phoenix the point of dark phoenix is not that it's suddenly a villain it's that it's a fall and a rise and how does how does that 
how does that story play out? It's a circle, not just here's a bad force that took over someone. And um, the 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 end of X2, she does something amazing. She gets Phoenix Force. You sort of see it flash in her eyes. She rescues everyone. Everyone thinks she's dead. That's pretty similar. That's not like, I mean, obviously the plot's different, but like it's a good analogy to how it happened in the comic. And then she sort of rises as Phoenix and you see her as Phoenix for like half a year before before Dark Phoenix starts happening. And then Dark Phoenix happens because she's deliberately manipulated. None of this happens. They just go cosmic alien bird force bad. And... Right. She rises as the Dark Phoenix almost immediately in this film. We don't get like her rising out of the water in the green costume, which is one of my favorite images from the comics mm. of all time. We don't get the Hellfire Club who gaslight her basically into like telepathically gaslight her and completely mess her up, which is kind of how the, the Dark Phoenix happens. And of course, the Dark Phoenix storyline is Uncanny X-Men 129 through 138. It's like a whole thing, very famous by Chris Claremont. It has its problems, but it is much better than any adaptation that I've seen, at least direct adaptation. Did you spot Chris in this film? Yes. So we get both a Stan Lee cameo and a Chris Claremont cameo, which is exciting. Is it astonishing? It's astonishing. Is it uncanny? (laughs) It's extraordinary. Is it an all new, all different cameo? <laughs> <laughs> that's all I got. That's all you got. I don't know any other. Uh, so <laughs> the other, the other thread that's happening here is, of course, with with Dark Phoenix in this story, is the continuation of what we talked about last episode with Megan, which is this very strange and not entirely convincing love triangle between her Wolverine and Cyclops. Sam actually turned to me about 20 minutes into this movie and said, wait, so that's it? He's just dead at the beginning of this movie? (laughs) So what did you think about the ways in which this storyline continues, the romance between Wolverine and Dark Phoenix? And what do you think about Cyclops being killed so early on? He probably has like three lines in this film. It's so badly done. I I don't have a problem with the with the love triangle which is neatly worked out now as a throuple like that is the way forward for the, for the love triangle <laughs> is a throuple they have adjoining rooms on the moon it's great um but uh, <laughs> but um you know it, i just feel like i what did who did james Marston piss off not james Marston, james Marston. Um, what, who did he piss off to get treated as badly as he gets treated in these movies? I actually have an answer for that, and we'll get to it oh, later. Really? But, okay. but you'll be pleased to know there's a real reason behind this. But we'll get to that. Continue. <laughs> so I think I think Hugh Jackman is uh, by far the most compelling, or, or without outside of McKellen and, and Stewart, by far the most compelling. I don't think that's a, a particularly hot take. Um, I think Famke Janssen is. Uh, smoking hot, uh, as we all saw from Bond, and uh, and sort of continues that here. She has nothing to do in this film, but I think she's she's pretty great in the in the first couple. But there isn't a love triangle in this film. <laughs> it basically, Phoenix rises, kills him, and then goes off, and then is killed by Wolverine at the end. I mean, there's almost no interactions. There's there's le- there's more interactions of the love triangle in X2, I think, than in here. 
they they barely interact with each other. The, oh, the the Phoenix stuff is just handled so bad. It's just it's it's clear that they wanted to talk wanted to do Phoenix, and they didn't have a story to do Phoenix, or they were told they weren't allowed to because it was too dark. And so they went to the Cure, but just rather than just ditch it and focus on a plot that would actually work, and they could make a movie out of it. And I have some thoughts on how they could have done that. Uh, they just decided to shoehorn both in and, and neither satisfied to anyone. So one of the best parts, because the love triangle exists in the comics as well, in the in the Dark Phoenix storyline specifically, but the emphasis is more placed on Jean's relationship with Scott. Like it's the tearful goodbye right at the end with, with her and Scott. In fact, there's a scene, even though this movie tries to make the dramatic climax i guess of that relationship being wolverine killing her right stabbing her with his claws which they don't completely explain why he's the only one that can kill him because if she can rearrange adams i'm really not sure how his healing power is supposed to like deal with that but anyway that's a whole different thing but in the in the comics we get so this film is the first instance we see of the fastball special, which is Colossus throwing Wolverine, which is great. Yes, and it's great. It's yeah, really yeah. good. It's good. Yeah, we see it twice in this film. But in the in the comics, there's this scene that does the reverse of the fastball special where they're on the moon, they're fighting Dark Phoenix, and Wolverine actually tells Colossus, I'm going to throw you this time because he can because they're on the moon. Gravity, right? He says, I'm going to throw you yep. this time because I can't, I can't kill her. I can't do it. Like, I just can't. And I thought that was such an emotional moment in the comics when he's just like, I, I refuse. I can't face her. I can't do this. Like, you're going to be after the one that d- does this. And they do, like, the, the inverse of their usual move, right, where he's throwing Colossus. I thought that was, like, a really great emotional moment. But, of course, we don't get that at all in this. We just get, like. No. I mean, we also get the. Uh, bouncing around a bit, but like that fight, that big the last stand at the end is so ridiculous. Like he's Magneto's like, yes, you send the pawns in first, and then like all they then they go one by one with all of the like his brotherhood, and it's like, oh my god, why are you still standing there? Why is Phoenix standing there <laughs> when you've got five chump x-men who you could wipe out in a second because if we send them all in at once the good guys lose and there's no movie yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we still need to eke out another 10 minutes of this movie so okay but before we talk about what happens after the climax where the where the film kind of drops us off and says see you next time maybe you said a few minutes ago that you have ideas for how this could have been better. I mean, which I'm pretty sure is just about literally anything, but but <laughs> <laughs> but what do you got? Okay, so this is a little bit too close to sort of what happened in Act 2, but I think that you make the villain of this movie, Scott. I think that he is devastated by the death of Gene. You get onto the sort of revolutionary era Cyclops that you have in the comics where he aligns himself very closely with Magneto. You see him effectively rejecting Xavier's dream and saying, this assimilation of stuff doesn't work. They will always hate us. Uh, we have to fight back. Look at them. They've got a cure and they they will use that cure on us. I think you make Scott the villain of the movie, or not the villain, the, the complex antagonist of the, of the movie. And maybe you seed in that Phoenix arrives at the very end, like to, to sort of 
or, or find a way to get through through to him at the end. I don't know. I don't quite sure how you finish that up. I just think that fundamentally, Phoenix is a total sideshow in this in this in this film. Is not part of the main plot. When she's there, she's just a wrecking ball, and so they have to find ways to make her not do anything and just stand around looking conflicted. Um, and then you could focus on uh, on a on a relationship between Scott and um, and Logan uh, that can rotate around Jean. You can use Famke Janssen in flashback or in in you know theory, but you make Scott the protagonist rather than and you make him a, an interesting character rather than what we got. Yeah, yeah, because like they try to talk about his grief a little bit at the beginning, but they don't really go anywhere with it because they kill him off so quickly so yeah he, he goes he goes to alkali lake and then yeah he exactly and so i mean that that makes sense to me i mean the problem that is always going to be with the phoenix i mean and it was a problem in the comics which is why they had to do something like dark phoenix is that she's overpowered like she is so powerful that it's really difficult to tell a story with actual stakes where she's involved but I do, I, I mentioned this to Sam. One of my problems, I think, too, is that Professor X acts very villainously in this film. Like, he straight up says that he modified her without his, her consent. Like, that he did something to her, her psyche. He created a split personality, which is, I guess, what we're doing with the Phoenix. Whoa, yeah, on. the whole thing, without her consent. And I, I just, I was thinking about this with Sam. I'm like, why is it every time that women have like this kind of power that we have to do something to help them control it versus a character like Superman, who is also overpowered, like Superman is like an overpowered godlike figure, but he just grows up in Kansas and has empathetic parents and he's fine. Like, you know, it's, it's kind of one of those things where it's interesting to be like, well, this character we're being told because she's a woman, because she has this paternal figure in her life who feels like he has to control her. That leads her to becoming evil versus like a male character with similar, like a similar type of power level who just grows up and is a hero and is able to control himself and it's fine. Like, I just think that's fascinating to compare those types of stories. Yeah. Um, the, um, the hysteria, the, uh, she's gone crazy. How can she, you can't handle the power. I mean, you, I think, I'm worried that we're going to see that with Wanda, with Scarlet Witch in, in the MCU as well. Um, it's It's been going around for quite a while. It's not a lot of fun. It's just so tired. Well, and and speaking of, I think there's adjacent to this conversation is Rogue. You know, the end of the movie, Rogue is powerless by choice. Magneto is not powerless by choice. He is powerless but he didn't want it but he's getting it back so that's okay professor x is in a new body question mark is that ethical no yeah. no and and we no, have but professor but we all know professor xavier is a jerk well yeah right. we do now um but you know so we we talked about this a little bit before we hit record but to me like if you think about what a direct sequel to this would have looked like right Storm is like in charge now. Logan is doing the same thing Logan does all the time, which is come and go as he pleases. I think Rogue is like a teacher, right? Because she hangs around. And Iceman and Kitty are like the the two like main like X-Men put on the suit and go do stuff. 
at least that's what it looks like to me. And, and yeah, I think Storm was supposed to be the leader in this one, right? Except that um, she's played poorly by Halle Berry, and everyone wants to see Hugh Jackman, so she doesn't get many lines, and and basically Wolverine turns into the leader. Well, first of all, okay, so two things. First, briefly, you mentioned that the that this plot where we end is carried through a little bit later in the series in a couple of ways. If you want to talk about that for a minute, but also. If there was, like, if we didn't do first class, sorry, if we didn't do Wolverine Origins and then first class, if we did a direct sequel to this, if we did X4, what would have made it not this, not bad? Good question. Okay, so you've got, okay, so so the only, the only real direct follow-up are at the end of The Wolverine, which is actually a fun movie, an underrated movie, The Wolverine. Um, uh, you've got the post-credit scene, and you've got uh, both Eric and Charles showing up, effectively to uh, presage um, Days of Future Past. Except that actually, Days of Future Past happens like twenty years later, or whatever. I don't know. But what you've got in um, what you've got is you've got Kate Pride, you've got Iceman, you've got Angel uh, flying around somewhere. You've got um, Beast, eh. you've got Storm and Wolverine, and you've got the, you probably got Rogue slowly getting her powers back through the movie. It's a good question because that's not. Eh. I'm trying to think if there are good storylines that you could have done with that. You've got Colossus still. You could bring Emma Frost in. I think you bring Emma Frost in, and I think you bring the Hellfire Club in. I think that's the best best options i don't want to see sentinels i don't want to see trask i don't want to see human threat i want to see um not that i don't mind days of future Past. i think it's all right but um if, if i'm doing a direct sequel to this i think emma frost is your best bet uh, as, a, as an antagonist and find a way to bring her into the fold by the end of it I've talked so much in the last two episodes that I feel like I'm just repeating myself every episode, but they really, really messed up Rogue as a character in this from the beginning. Like, she is not the Rogue of the comics at all. And I feel like this is a good example of just how dirty they did that character, which is terrible because, as I've mentioned before, Anna Paquin can play this character. We've seen her play a similar character on True Blood. It is a very similar character in a lot of ways. So... (laughs) Do you want to do your vampire bill impression? Okay. No, I want want a true blood uh, X-Men crossover. Uh, Exactly, exactly. And I I, I feel like this movie is like, to me, it reads the same as like Revenge of the Sith reads with Padme. Like she's just here to cry and like get the cure. Like she has maybe like four scenes in this and... She just seems very, and and I get it. Like, I think they could have told the story in a compelling way. Like someone like Rogue would actually be really tempted by a cure because her power is very isolating and very debilitating in some ways, but they don't actually talk about that because they're more interested in like the cure storyline and they're more interested in the Dark Phoenix storyline. So they don't really flesh out like why Rogue feels the way that she feels. She just kind of comes across as powerless and and kind of mopey and weepy, which is what she's felt like for the first two movies. Like, so in that sense, they've drawn through the character okay. 
but she doesn't feel like Rogue. And this movie, I feel like, is the dirtiest yeah. example of that, which is why we never see her again. <laughs> yeah, there's the Rogue cut of Days of Future Past, isn't there, where she's a little bit more present. But um, yeah, it's not Rogue at all. You're 100% right. Suki is more um, Rogue than Rogue is here. <laughs> and, and And you've got... Baby Elliot Page uh, doing a great job as as Kate Bride. Uh, love to see it. Um, you've got Bobby being just the worst boyfriend <laughs> in the whole. I mean, I mean, okay, it's teenage soap opera, which is what the X Men is, so I'm fine with it. But I mean, come on, Bobby, be better. <laughs> um, but you, you've got to. You're right. Like they talk about, you know, Rogue. Very very first thing she does. When her mutant mutation comes through, she uh, she kisses a boy. He ends up in a coma. Right, there is a clear through line they do, but they don't actually mention that. They just assume you kind of know it, and you assume they assume that all of the rubbish she's been through through the first two movies you've got present in your head, and so you can just read it through, which I guess is kind of you know not 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 doing full exposition on your audience for every single character motivation is okay, but you're right, it's just not rogue. Before we move on to talk about some of the characterizations of the, the the characters that we're really seeing for the first time in this movie that we haven't already talked about, I want to ask you about a specific storyline. I like the idea of the Hellfire Club, but I've actually read one storyline that I don't think Tessa's read, which is a much later, much more recent storyline. It's the Terrigen Mist storyline. Have you read that? Yeah. I, I think that's a really interesting idea. The idea that the Terrigen Mist creates the Inhumans, but then does bad things to the to the mutants and all the kind of stakes that that creates. And of course, that obviously comes after these movies, but like, could they do that? I guess the challenge of doing that as an X-Men 4 directly after this is you have to establish who the heck the Inhumans are, and you've got to go through all the weird eugenics nonsense that, that sort of ties that. Could you do it now? I mean, the Inhumans have kind of been butchered a couple of times <laughs> since as well. And I think I think they might be retconning the Inhuman element of Kamala. I'm not. It yeah, seems that way. I sus- I suspect so. Um, it's weird. I actually think Agents of Shield does much better with um, a very again very underrated show. Season three and season four of Agents of Shield are actually all-time spectacular yeah. seasons of TV. Really, really good, and people should uh, shouldn't sleep on those. Um, but they do great stuff with Inhumans there, and New Humans, which was all sort of stuff that was coming out in the comics at the time. But um, but subsequent to that, it sort of faded away. They had the TV show that, that was a total bomb. I honestly haven't seen anything of that show. The the concept of something's great for us, put poison for for our established characters is an interesting idea. Some of the things that played out in Death of X and in Humans versus X Men is interesting, particularly around Emma and Scott's relationship. But I think you can't, you can't really actually maybe that's it. Maybe that's how you do X Four is you you start up the Emma and Scott relationship and you see Logan still being resentful of of Scott moving on too fast, maybe. I don't know. I, I, I like I like, so, I like bringing in some of those elements, yeah. It would be a way to make Scott into a more complicated, antagonistic character as well. Yeah. I could see that, yeah. But I, it has to be him choosing it. You can't have him being 
mind controlled by Emma or anything like that. I think make giving weirdly. Let's talk about giving the white man. Agency, <laughs> but, uh, well, I mean, she wouldn't have to telepathically control him. I just think that if they were in a relationship, she would. She is more of a morally ambiguous character, anyway. So, kind of just encouraging those tendencies in him. She doesn't have to do it telepathically. I think he would just naturally start to to gravitate towards that. Let's talk about new or newish characters um, before we get into the Easter egg characters. So we've talked about Hank a little bit. We've talked about Kitty, touched on Colossus and Leech. But we've got so kind of the, the, the characters who play more of a role in this. And then we'll get to some of the smaller ones. We've got Juggernaut, Angel, we mentioned him a little bit, Callisto, Quill. What do you think? You've got multiple men yep. as well. Played um, by played by so, future Grey's Anatomy alum. <laughs> oh, good times! I, I have never I've never seen an episode of Grey's Anatomy. He's McSteamy. Is he? Yeah. I don't. I I don't definitely had not seen this movie in so long that I didn't realize that it was him, and I definitely had a reaction as soon as I saw him as multiple man. I'm like, that's who plays him. It's it's basically <laughs> when they decide. Let's turn the love triangle into a love square. And he's like the fourth okay. data point. So that's that's what he's most known for, I would say, in pop culture. Fine. All right. I will take your word <laughs> okay. for that, guys. Okay. I'm afraid you've got the wrong yeah. guy to be talking great. <laughs> I'm trying to think if there was anyone else. I mean, you get, yeah, you get, Kavita Rao has lines. Moira has lines rather than just pure background Easter egg stuff. But what did you like about these? They really attempted to characterize, I guess I'd say, Juggernaut, Angel, Callisto, and Quill. I think those are the four that they try to do something with. And I mean, I don't think the somethings are terrible. No, I agree. I think, I think, I mean, Juggernaut is a meme, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's the level he's at. He's played by, um, I sent this to Tessa before, but he's played by like an average quality English footballer from the 80s and 90s. And I, I mean soccer when I say football, but I'm not going to. You know, they pull Vinnie Jones out whenever, like he's been in. Um, he was in Lockstock. Before yeah, one this. of the CW shows too. Like, I'm not sure if it was Legends, but he's even been in that. He's fine. He, I mean, he just plays himself, basically. He, I mean, he... Does he play Brick? Yes. Yeah. Yes, it's Arrow. My bad. Yeah, sorry. Uh, <laughs> I mean, he's good in Lockstock. He's fun, right? He's... Um, I think he's fun in this. I mean, he he's playing Juggernaut as a mutant, and Juggernaut isn't technically a mutant, but we can hand wave that. That's fine. Um, I, think he's, I think he's fine in this. I think I quite like Angel in it. I like the sort of binding of the wings thing and the sort of allegory that that is, and that is straight out of the comics as well. Um, I like Quill. Who's the guy who plays Quill? He's really good. The actor who plays Quill is, um, I thought, I thought he was probably for me the most successful of the, of the four. I think Callisto is meh. She's okay. I really like Callisto as a character, so I'm kind of, she, she, she doesn't get to be they also call they don't call them Morlocks they call them the Omega Gang which means they don't call Jean an Omega class mutant they call her a class 5 mutant and I'm just like 
Why didn't you just call them um, call them Morlocks, guys? Ken Ken Lurng. Yeah, Ken Lurng is uh, who plays Quill. Yeah, he showed up in like a few other things too. It was fun. I just I'd never heard of Quill before, and it's like maybe this character means something more to people who are invested. But it seems like really good character actor doing a mutant that's kind of eh. yeah. I mean, uh, Quill is not um, not a character I know that well. Um, and I don't know how much screen time he's had in comics either. I like that you brought up the Morlocks because I really like when, like you said, X-Men is a metaphor that's pretty flexible. It sort of works on a number of levels until it doesn't work anymore. But one of the things that I've always appreciated about X-Men is when they talk about characters with bodily differences, like with, yeah. with mutations that are that affect their bodies in different ways. And like there's that great line that I mentioned in the last episode where Mystique says, you know, we shouldn't have to like change ourselves, you know, in order for them to accept us. And there's a great, 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 great storyline in the animated series X-Men Evolution involving a character who's very similar to Quill, Spike, who is like... Uh, also in, in this. Yeah. Who's in this? Spike yeah, is in, in this, this movie. Yeah. He, in the, in the show, is played as the nephew, I believe, of Storm. Like, he's Storm's nephew, and he's also from Africa, and okay. he comes in. But then as his mutation, like, grow, like, becomes more advanced, he starts not being able to pull the spikes back in. And so he starts having these, like, bodily differences, and he ends up, like, running away to the sewers to join the Morlocks. And that's, like, because he, he decides that, he, that, like, mutants need to be more, less assimilationist, more activist. And I, I loved that storyline, and I wish they could have incorporated more elements of that here. Yeah, I mean, the passing concept uh, is actually one I think that they're exploring really well in the current run of comics. Um, so it sounds like he turns into a bit more like Marrow in uh, Evolution, which we haven't seen. Yeah, like, uh, and actually uh, that early scene with the Morlocks where Magneto's there and where whoever's talking up and saying we have to be, we have to be peaceful, we have to not, uh, you know, basically portraying Xavier's side of things and Magneto stands up. Um, I think that seems great. I, that's part of the first 20, 25 minutes of the movie that's good fun. You've got loads of Easter eggs in the background. You've got like Crimson Dawn's Psylocke uh, in there as well. You've got a couple of other people. And it's a really good scene. Uh, and the Morlocks are good fun. And it's a cool, dark, haunted church. Who doesn't want to see more? You know, it's funny. I didn't realize that's who that was. I just thought it's like the new squad. Okay, cool. That's interesting. It It's just, you know... I think they underestimate their audience a whole lot. I think that if you do a little bit more, I don't want to call it fan service, although it certainly would be, but I don't think you're going to turn off the casual blockbuster viewer by going, you know, by naming these things and doing a little bit, you know, more signposting about this because there's the people like me in the middle who don't know a lot but are interested. I think that would have been cool. Like, I think you could spend a little time developing that idea. You know, in Apocalypse, you know, I, I, I really thought Psylocke's character was interesting or could have been interesting. It wasn't. She wasn't. But she could have been. And I've read some comics since then. I'm like, oh, this is actually an interesting character. You know, and, and we don't really, they don't really do a thing with her. She's just there for the most part. They could have done more. Oh, I mean, I think, you know, whether it's Betsy, Braddock, or uh, or Canon, um, that character, uh, albeit with an awful lot of troubling Orientalism through the 80s and 90s, um, is fantastic and, and iconic. 
And I actually think, you know, I think Olivia Munn really liked playing her. And you see all these videos of her training to do so. And then she just gets nothing in that absolute mess of That seems to be the the way in which we do X-Men. Get you really excited for a character and then nothing happens. That that seems to be their yeah it, yeah I I kind of I almost think that the writers aren't very good. almost almost as if now I I I saw at least credited we have uh we have a we have Jubilee we have Siren Hellion uh Anol Anoli uh Fat yeah. which is the character with the the bot who can change the size of his played by two different actors ArcLight Glob yep. Ash. There, I'm sure there are more. Any, any, anything stick out in those kind of those Easter eggs? Um, yeah, I spotted most of those. Um, they're they're fine. They're just Easter eggs. I was I I much prefer. I was much more interested in Olivia Williams playing Moira McTaggart and uh, Shoria Dashlu, who I've definitely butchered her surname uh, as um, as Doctor Rao. I mean, those are fantastic actors in. Um, you know, you've got um, Olivia Williams in loads of things, but like in even in Dollhouse, she's great fun in that. Shore is obviously fantastic in The Expanse. Uh, so it was just, I loved seeing them, not given a lot to do at all. Um, I, I actually think Olivia Williams is a really good, um, uh, good look comparison with Rose Byrne, who plays her in um, in the younger films, in the um, in the uh, McAvoy and Fastbender films. Yeah, I I mean, I feel like we were supposed to react with, to that particular Easter egg, but we just don't get very much of her. She's in two scenes. They don't signpost who they who these people are, why you should care about them right. at all. Yeah. I mean, they barely do that with Cyclops, to be honest. So. I guess I just wanted to say, too, like, Colossus in this film, like, barely gets anything to do, and... I don't understand why they felt the need to Americanize him so much. Like, because Bobby even calls him Pete at one point, and it just felt really wrong. Like, I just really hated that. But I I don't know. I like the, I don't remember the actor, but I like the person who plays him better in, like, the Deadpool movies, because I think he's a little bit closer to what that character is in the comics. In my mind, that character is very much in the comics, especially when he was introduced in the 50s. He's very much supposed to be like Chekhov in the original series. Like, he's yeah. supposed to represent this, like, oh, like, he's Russian, but he's a good guy. Like, he's, you know, like, there's supposed to be, like, sort of that subversiveness in it, which I guess doesn't play as well now. But I just, I feel like a lot of these characters are very Americanized and very white. And I feel like he's a example of that in a lot of ways, even though he doesn't get much to do. No, I think you're completely right. I mean, if you look at, the giant-sized team, which was Colossus and Storm and Wolverine and Nightcrawler, which were all, you know, Storm's from Kenya by way of many other places. Logan's from Canada, um, who's, and that's like the closest you've got, right? You've got Kurt from uh, Germany. You've got uh, Colossus from Russia. The, the point that, Cle- well, it was before Claremont just about, but the point they were trying to do was open it up, make it less American, make it less white Anglo-Saxon Protestants in Westchester, right? <laughs> so it was, um, it was, um, it, 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 yeah, fear, having it sort of pull back and become a bit more American. Halle Berry does not play this as a, as an African 
storm to me and uh, with no, not even a hint of it. Yeah, I, I think you're completely right. I think the Americanization of it is, is a shame because it sort of it brings the world smaller, it makes the world smaller rather than opening it up. You lose, Kurt's not in this film at all um, for I'm sure scheduling reasons, but you know, you lose that diversity and, and particularly for a cure thing, Kurt would be a perfect character to have in this where you've got someone who's not passing, who's got a demon tail, who was chased out by humans, who, who would be conflicted um, to go alongside Rogue going, okay, well, if I touch people, it's bad, but fundamentally, otherwise, I look look like a normal person. Um, and you could address those different types of passing and not, and then the Morlocks and so on and so forth. But because you've got to cr- cram Dark Phoenix in, uh, you just don't get the time and space to do it. Yeah, before we move on to the, the facts and stats, I just want to mention, I have a very important question to ask you. It's so important. As I was watching this, there's this moment in the film where Beast, it like it's at it's during that climactic fight, and Beast is is trying to quote Churchill, and he keeps getting interrupted right in the middle of this fight. Like he, you know, as Churchill once said, and he keeps getting interrupted, and he can't finish the quote, and so finally he just says, "Oh, you get the point." And it's the most like Fraser moment in this particular film. Like I was like, yeah, Fraser would say that. Like that that is Fraser. If Niles Crane was a mutant. What would be Niles Crane's power? Wow. Okay. I mean, I have a question to uh, ask you back after this one. So, uh, <laughs> but now I have to think about that. Wow, that's a great, great question. <laughs> I mean, he he reminds me more of like the character Moist from Doctor Horrible. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you guys have seen that, which is another Joss thing. But um, just he just makes things slightly moist, not like not like a lot of water, but just a little bit sort of just, slow, just a little, a little bit, bit humid. Bit. Just brings that. Yeah, I could see it. Like one of the the slight mutant powers. Like it's just like a little bit. Yeah, he'd be he'd be he'd be very passing. He wouldn't have any reason to get the cure or not to get the cure. He'd be opinionated about it, but but everyone would be like. Oh, oh, you're mean. Oh, okay, I didn't. All right, all right. What was the question you had for me? Okay, so this is based on a book I'm reading at the moment, but if you had to cast Anthony Bourdain as an X-Man, which one would you do? Okay, this is going to seem very strange, but I think you have to cast him as Cable. Interesting. That's good. It's good. I think you could just plug him in as Magneto. That would work. Yeah, I like. I think I like Cable better. But, yeah. I'm not sure he's... I don't know whether he's big enough for Cable. Mm, fair. But 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 I like the... I'd love... <laughs> he could be Cable it's, and Strike. He's reverse Logan. Great. He's, you know, where, yeah. where Jackman is too big. Jackman is too big. Yeah. <laughs> so it's okay. Actually, you know what? We, we have to, like, to loop back to an earlier question, though, like, that just made me go, that's what other things you could have done with X4. You could bring in Cable and Strife. You could bring in Rachel Summers. You could bring in Bishop, right? There's all of these yeah. interesting characters you could have you could have done. Okay. So let's move to the astonishing facts for this episode. See, it's a fun segment. We did We did fast facts and furious stats last year, so it's just kind of a bit. Right. But I'm going to come back to Frasier for a moment. Kelsey Grammer, Frasier, does not audition. He is too big of an actor to actually audition. That is Kelsey Grammer's stature. 
cannot signpost that enough for you. He wanted to play Beast so badly, he was willing to audition. So, Singer, Ratner, Fox, whomever, get zero credit for Kelsey Grammer's portrayal as Beast. That is all him. I just, I think that's fascinating. Stars and garters. Oh my, stars and garters. The original treatment for what would have been the Dark Phoenix Saga film instead of The Last Stand has Jean joining the Hellfire Club with Ripley herself, that's right, Sigourney Weaver, as Emma Frost. Could have had that. I mean, you see her in the um, the Defender series, don't you? Yeah. So she plays effectively like the head of the hand or whatever, and she's quite good in that. Um, I can see that-ish. Yeah, you know, ish. so this this kind of pays off something we talked about earlier in the episode. So Singer sees the finished cut of The Last Stand and says, I could have done better. And that just really makes me think, because you brought up Rise of Skywalker earlier. I would give so much to live in an alternate universe where J.J. Abrams said that about Trevorrow's version of Episode Nine. Because say what you will, I'm sure it would have been better. I, I think Singer might have done a better job than Ratner did, but I don't know. I just think that's interesting. It's like, I could have done better. I think no one could have done much better because of the time scales that they forced on themselves. And I think it's the same problem with Rise of Skywalker. Uh, and you talk to, you listen to what they talked about with Force Awakens, where they found that film in the edit, right? And I just don't think they had time to find the Rise of Skywalker in the edit, which is why they have all of the nonsense with Palpatine, why they have, and, and then the same with this. They just, I don't think they filmed anywhere near enough. They didn't have enough time for special effects, which is why it looks janky other than the um the the some of the angel stuff is all right and the um the, the gold gate bridge scene is fine but like that's clearly where all the money yeah. went for the film i don't i just don't know they had time they they needed to just go we don't have time we've we've lost our director we've lost our writer we need to delay this a year and i just don't think they were prepared to do that yeah so the the last two facts that I have and then leading into the stats are all about that. Why do we see so little of Mystique in Cyclops? Well, because people in Hollywood are just like us. Actors have to work. They don't just sit around waiting for roles and franchises to keep coming along. Rebecca Romaine and James Marsden were doing other things. And then they were like, wait, we need you in today. And they're like, guys, we can't do that. <laughs> so we get Cyclops killed at the beginning. We get Mystique left for dead or, you know, mutant dead, basically, oh, which is the point that yeah. Magneto makes. Oh, that that scene yeah. with Magneto is so cold. It's it's <laughs> terrible, though, when you know, I, I hate plot points. It's a pop culture pet peeve. Plot points that are necessitated by production. You don't let behind the scenes drive a story. You just don't. And that speaks to what you said about they should have pushed back the release date. I also really just very, very quickly, I love the scene with Magneto and Mystique because I, I think that is so cold, like you said. I hated the part where they were like, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. That no was fury, Brett Radner's man. sexism coming straight through in that moment. That, and I stand by that. 
I agree. And Brett Ratner has said that he never knew the characters before he did it, right? Of course so not. It didn't feel, you know, Mystique would not be that unsubtle. She would get back at Eric, but not not that unsubtly. One character that they did want to have and had originally planned for this film was Gambit. But there was a studio directive that said, other than Wolverine, no character can appear in this movie and the Origins movie. You got it one or the other, and and they licked Gambit first, so Origins got Gambit, and we didn't get to see Channing Tatum, Magic Mike, as Gambit in The Last Stand. As we see from Ryan Reynolds in that film compared to <laughs> subsequently in Deadpool, there are, there are decisions that were made that were perhaps not ideal in, <laughs> in Origins. So moving on to the uncanny stats. So as you said, the effects for this movie are not great, which is weird because they spent $110 million on X2. They spent $210 million on this movie, which was the most money ever spent on a film for roughly six weeks until the numbers for Pirates of the Caribbean Dead Men's Chest came in. But at that time, yeah, that's what you got for that much money. Where? <laughs> Where is the money? I would rather watch Waterworld twice. I, I think there's a line item budget for, uh, for Brett Ratner. I won't go into what that probably is, but you got to. <laughs> that's all I, can I, I was actually going to say Halle Berry's salary, but. Oscar winner. Oscar winner Halle, Halle Berry. Berry. Did she get paid more than um, Jackman and Stuart McKellen? I don't know. It, so the thing was in X2, because between the first two movies, she had won the Oscar. And so she was able to command a bigger salary, which hurt the budget of X2. I still don't know if she made as much. It's sad that you'd have to ask that question. Um, but it is, of course, a question. And so I don't know how much that played into X3, but you'd think with like a hundred million more dollars, they could figure it out. The movie's way shorter, too. I mean, it's, it's really short. Like, it's so rushed. The jump from like the camps to the to Alcatraz are very, very quick. And you suddenly go, oh, oh the, the film's basically over now. I just don't know where the money goes Right. There. There's not that many effects. There are fewer effects. It's not like you've got Nightcrawler bamfing around the place. It's just a bit of an angel. And Which, what? you know, Alan Cumming did not want to come back because it was just too much work. He did have yeah, scheduling issues by sense. the time they got around to him, but he just wasn't that interested. He didn't want to spend four hours yeah. in, the, in the makeup chair. Right. So there's that. But so you talked about the money going out. Let's talk about the money coming in. So X2 made $85.5 million domestic the first weekend. X3, the, sorry, The Last wow. Stand, made $102 million, which sounds like an improvement, but it was a four-day Memorial Day weekend open. It's still a lot. Like $100 million a weekend, opening weekend, is a lot of money, particularly, like, I'm sure, adjusted for inflation. That's even more but if you think but... about it, as you said, they wanted this release date. They wanted the Tentpole Memorial Day because you get that big, giant-sized, pun not intended, but it works, uh, weekend. <laughs> and so, you know, so total, total box office over the whole thing. So X2 had $407 million, 
last stand at $459 million, which is an improvement, but that improvement does not offset the cost of the increased budget. So this movie, dollar for dollar, is less successful than X2. There was a less return on investment. I don't think uh, anyone would be too I, Yeah, surprise. Um, top five for the weekend, real fast. Memorial Day weekend this year. X-Men, of course, number one, followed by Da Vinci Code. Another quality, another quality yes. adaptation. The children's film Over the Edge. J.J. Abrams checks in with Mission Impossible 3 at number four. And the disaster movie Poseidon. So that's, yeah, I know, right? What? I think Liam Neeson was in that. Maybe? Question mark? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I think that's a reasonable guess. <laughs> if you could have just said, there's an action movie, it features the name of a uh, Greek god. Uh, who do you think is in it? Yeah, probably Liam right. I mean, like, there might have been like a time where, uh, what's his face from uh, 300 and Phantom? All right. Anyway, I'm going to turn that over. Okay. All new, all no, no, not one second. I have a question. Oh dear. Wait, this ties in. What do you think about the Liam Neeson storyline from Love Actually? Does that still stand up? (laughs) The one where he ends up with um, the supermodel. Yes, and his kid is the Game of Thrones weird kid. His kid is Jojen Reed. Yeah, Um, and also in Star Wars. Um, He, eh, that's all right. Uh, they're all worth storylines. I think it's Colin is a worth I think story it hits harder now because of his wife's death. Like, like I just yeah. that scene always makes me cry at the beginning when he starts crying. The the um uh over my dead body, no dear over mine, uh is a good one. It's time for all new, all different, where I recommend things to watch or read based on this movie. I think. I have to go with the original Dark Phoenix run, which is Uncanny X-Men 129 through 138, like I said before. Although there are plenty of things that you could watch that do Dark Phoenix better since then that are not X-Men properties. The one shout out I wanted to give was to the Umbrella Academy season one, which actually does Dark Phoenix without doing Dark Phoenix and stars in that role, Elliot Page, who is, of course, playing Kitty Pride in this particular movie. So there you go. If you want to see an adaptation of Dark Phoenix that's not an X-Men property, Umbrella Academy Season 1 is the way to go. Okay, bonus all-new, all-different segment. Lazi, what would you recommend? If you want to read X-Men, uh, read House of X, Powers of Ten. It's brilliant. Uh, it's, it's a soft reboot that came out about two years ago by Jonathan Hickman. The art is fantastic. It's completely reset the the medium for X-Men comics, which have been, to be honest, in the doldrums for 20 years before that. Uh, and then anything subsequent to that is good. Read Wicked and Divine. That's great. Uh, or you, if you want to see a film that's basically about X-Men, but not about X-Men, but everyone has silly powers and it's all ridiculous, uh, I guess watch The Last Twilight film. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, he paces in that one. Oh, God. Please don't. It's Christmas. <laughs> don't re- <laughs> watch Lord of the Rings. Don't yeah. watch the Hobbit. Uh, yes. Yes. All right. Like Rogue's powers, it's time for us to choose to end this episode. But unlike Rogue in Days of Future Past, we won't end up on the cutting room floor next time. So join us tomorrow 
That was good. Did you, did you like, that? like that? Did you like that? <laughs> Complicated, but good. I got there. I worked on that. For the, <laughs> for the next installment of the 13 Days of X-Men, when we'll be talking X-Men Origins, Wolverine, with our special guest, Deadpool himself, Ryan Reynolds. Okay, Ryan Reynolds isn't joining us, but just for a second there, you thought it was possible. Ryan Reynolds uh, as played in the second half of yep. Deadpool movie. Oh, sorry, in the second half of <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> See, I just really think if we had tried, we might have actually gotten him. Because, like, I feel at this point he's looking for new and different ways to punk Hugh Jackman. And I think we could have offered him something. Anyway. <laughs> he seems to be very creative. <laughs> so, watch along with us. Tweet at us. Email us. Let us know all your miraculous mutant thoughts. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Monkey Backlog. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com and visit our website, monkeyoffmybacklog.com. Lazi, where can people find you online? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Mean Englishman, which is a stupid math pun that I made 10 years ago and I can't change the handle anymore. <laughs> and um, you, you do not have your own podcast, but you have appeared in a prominent guest role on... Uh, yes, I don't have a podcast, uh, but I recommend uh, to anyone who wants to rewatch the best Star Trek series, uh, Deep Space Nine, uh, friend of the pod, Elise and uh, Matthew Hugh, who are uh, human rays of sunshine, are doing a DS9 uh, rewatch pod called The Power Race. Tessa. You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. In her appearance on Pod Race, I have no doubt she is also a ray of sunshine. <laughs> such a such a sunshiny podcast. It is. It's a very wholesome podcast. Oh, jeez. So this isn't that? No. No, okay. No. All right. Our theme song is Jingle Bells by Scott Holmes and can be found on scottholmesmusic.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Happy holidays, and get that monkey off your back, bub.